Well, let's turn, if you haven't already, to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses uh, 17 to 25. In fact, I'll do the same thing as I'm uh, talking here. 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25. We're continuing uh, in bits and pieces, perhaps, a, a sermon series through the book of 1 Timothy. And uh, Paul, once again, in this passage, returns to the topic of leadership. This has actually been one of the themes in the letter, but um, because there are problems among leadership, problems in the church are resulting from problems in leadership. But leadership in the church or other organizations has the potential to be the source of great problems. It also has the potential to be the source of great solutions to problems. And that's the good news in it. So I've titled this message, Healthy Church Leadership. And it's a bit of a play on words because the passage really is about healthy leadership in the church. But there's another sense in which you could say that it's about leadership in a healthy church. It's healthy church leadership and healthy church leadership all at the same time because a healthy church depends upon healthy leadership. If you don't have healthy leadership, you will not long have a healthy church. And you probably have plenty of experience, as do I, uh, participating in churches where that has been demonstrated. So let's look together at 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25, and I'm going to stand for the reading and invite you to do the same. 1 Timothy 5, beginning in verse 17, I'm reading now the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you, keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you for your true and living word and for the expectation that we can rightly have that when we open it, you make it come to life to us by your spirit. Uh, God, would you minister it in power today and in truth? Would you give life where we need life to spring up in us? Where every need on every heart is brought bare before you, Lord, would you minister by your word? And so we ask you would speak your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, and for your glory. In the great name of Jesus, amen. And you may be seated. Well, the, the previous passage you may remember, and it's probably two weeks ago that we were there. I know if I'm losing track, surely you are too. But the last time we were here, uh, the, the previous passage dealt with the subject of honoring widows. And so the financial provision was to be made for widows who were over 60. They had been faithful to the church. They had nobody else to care for them. But you may remember that 
financial provision was not to be made for other widows. So younger widows in particular, and those who did have somebody else to care for, but particularly the younger widows, he kind of elaborates the point that um, they should not be provided for. Rather, they should go on and, and, and marry and manage a household of their own or whatever. Because one of the concerns was that um, if they just had all of their needs met by the church, that they'd become idlers and busy, busy, busy bodies, and they would actually fuel the false teaching that was so problematic in the church. And that's actually uh, likely one of the connections between that passage and this one. Uh, New Testament scholars actually speak uh, with a little bit of sort of uh, puzzlement about uh, why this passage is placed here, particularly the one about elders. Why not mention it on the heels of the earlier passage about elders in chapter 3, the connection probably has to do with um, the elders and their contribution to the circulation of false teaching and some of these uh, widows as well. Um, but anyway, that's the heart of the problem in the church in Ephesus where Timothy was serving is the circulation of false teaching and all of the other problems, the ills, sort of result from that. Um, because if you have unhealthy you, uh, uh, disunified leadership in a church, even a healthy church will become sick in a matter of time. If you have unhealthy, disunified leadership, even a healthy church will become sick. But if you have a healthy, unified leadership in a church, even a sick church can become healthy in a matter of time. And so Paul outlines in this passage uh, three requirements for healthy church leadership. And I'm actually going to take them under sort of in a different order than how they appear in the text. But three requirements for healthy church leadership. Number one, a patient process for identifying future leaders. Number two, appreciation that befits good leadership. And number three, a climate of trust and accountability. So number one, let's look at this requirement that there be a patient process to identify future leaders. If you look in verse 22, and that's why I said I'm taking it a little bit out of order, but down there he says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. But do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. In other words, don't anoint someone, so to speak, as a leader too quickly. This is actually a common temptation and a common error, not only in churches, but in other organizations. But it's, it's, it's just tempting to embrace somebody too soon as a leader. And that can happen when you raise somebody up as a leader too quickly from within the church or within the organization. Um, and it could also happen when somebody from outside the church comes newly to the church, and before you've gotten to know them well, um, you've given them sort of a place of influence or leadership because they come with sort of a resume, so to speak. Like they've served in leadership before. Um, maybe you are... You kind of get starry eyes because of some of the people they know. Some of the people they've served with, they talk uh, the right talk. Like they, they're, they're, they're knowledgeable. Um, they sound spiritually mature and you know, all, all those kinds of things. And it can just be um, tempting to sort of give them a quick uh, early passing test and, and too quickly advance them into leadership. Um, and then to regret that decision later. And the reason... Uh, why that might be and the reason why we're not to be too hasty placing somebody in the leadership he gives in verse 24. It says there, the sins of some people are conspicuous, 
going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Now, hopefully we're wise enough that if somebody's sins are conspicuous, we don't put them in leadership or don't give them a, a, a voice of influence. But the, the problem is when, when somebody's sins, failings, shortcomings, errors, or whatever appear later. I say errors because what's interesting here is that likely... Uh, at least in part, some of the sin that Paul is referring to has to do with the association of some people with all of this false teaching and error that's being bred. Because uh, he says in this little bit of odd reference in verse 23, you know, or the end of verse 22, he says to Timothy, keep yourself pure and then no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, I'm kind of glad he included that verse, but you might ask, why, why did he put that here, like in the middle of all that? And um, it likely has to do with something we read at the beginning of chapter 4, where um, there is, among these false teachers, part of the teaching has to do with an insistence on certain kinds of asceticism, you know, uh, uh, refraining from certain food and drink, abstaining from marriage, um, and, and so on and so forth. And so... Um, He's telling Timothy, uh, don't take part in the sins of others like that. So keep yourself pure, but don't think that that purity means that you can't drink wine or uh, have to abstain from certain foods and so forth. And so as we, we try to make sense of what's included there, again, the implication is that, that part of the sins um, that would appear later is, uh, arises out of theological, doctrinal error. Uh, but in any case, the, the, the point is, you don't know what you don't know about people until you know, right? <laughs> you don't know what you don't know about people, but you'll certainly know more in time. If you spend time with people, you will know more than you do earlier on. Sometimes over time, you'll grow more concerned about them. And other times, you'll grow more encouraged. As a matter of fact, uh, sometimes you'll grow more concerned about people that you initially had real high opinion of. And maybe in other cases, you'll grow more encouraged about the potential leadership of somebody that you initially didn't have a very high opinion of, or you wouldn't have thought of them in that context. In fact, he says there, it's not only uh, the sins of others that we're concerned about, but in verse 25, so also the good works are conspicuous, and even those that um, are not, cannot remain hidden. So time will tell either for good or ill about somebody, but the knowledge of that uh, serves the congregation well so that of those who aren't going to be suitable for leadership aren't placed there. So for both of those reasons, both for the ways we'd be grow concerned or the ways we'd grow encouraged, we want to have a, a patient process of identifying future leaders. Um, we would be encouraged to have a process, by the way, uh, that maybe is another message altogether, but whatever process there is, it ought to be a patient one. Number two, not only a patient process, but um, healthy church leadership requires appreciation that befits good leadership. Now, I, I've said it that way in verses 17 and 18, the way pass the passage begins, it says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Uh, 
We talked about honor for the last couple of weeks, even in our departure from 1 Timothy and over into 1 Peter. And we've considered the fact that it, it, it has a few different connotations, and maybe most often it's just kind of esteem for people, uh, uh, a regard for people, a certain respect and deference depending on their position or um, age and, and different things of that sort. But the way we typically use honor, in other words, that sort of uh, respect and regard and so forth. Double honor here refers not only to that kind of honor, so, so the, the elders who rule well are worthy of that sort of honor that just befits their uh, role, their office as elder, but it's also worth financial compensation. And again, honor carries this sort of meaning. It did for the widows, that the honor shown to widows included financial provision. Uh, we, I mentioned in that message, if you think about the, the term we use, honorarium sometimes, a financial just remuneration for somebody who comes and speaks or, or whatever. Um, but it's made clear that, that it has that connotation. When he says in verse 18, the laborer deserves his wages. It's clear he's talking about financial compensation. So, and, and, and Paul there is quoting Jesus uh, from the Gospels of, of Matthew and Luke. So when Jesus is sending his disciples out into towns to preach, and he says, don't worry about you know, packing too much or making a whole lot of provision yourself, for yourself because the laborer is worthy of his wages. So the provision will be made for them when they arrive by those who are, are uh, appropriately honoring them as itinerant speakers. So I'm not going to belabor that point because it could easily sound self-serving uh, for a pastor to be talking about <laughs> uh, honoring the pastor uh, doubly or whatever, elders. But here's maybe uh, kind of a helpful context to bring to it from, from Hebrews 13, 17. So we just appreciate um, the heart behind honor that or appreciation that befits good leadership, honor that to do there. Uh, Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. So just again, in whatever ways that, that sort of uh, honor, compensation, appreciation in general is, is just befitting of the position, whatever labor is involved in keeping watch over the souls of the congregation. Let the elders do that with joy and not with groaning because that would be of no advantage to you. So a healthy church leadership requires a patient process uh, and it requires a patient process for identifying new leaders, that is. It requires appreciation that just befits good leadership. And then number three, it requires a climate of trust and accountability. A climate of trust and accountability. Let me read verse 19. Look there with me to begin with. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So uh, trust and accountability are involved here and both trust and accountability depend on a love of the truth. And, and I, I want to unpack this a little bit um, so we understand 
so you understand what I mean by that. I understand it. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to get you to the point of understanding that. But trust and accountability depend on a love of the truth in the sense that we want, we, together, we want to know what's true about the particular situation. So not just abstractly, not just that we believe the truth as in the Bible is true or whatever, um, but that when it comes to somebody's words or actions or alleged words or actions or whatever the motivation was there in the story, we want to know the truth, and we have, to, we have to come to that with a love of the truth um, in order to arrive at it, number one, but also in order to build, a, cultivate a climate of trust and accountability. Now, we see countless examples in our day of people who spread falsehoods, and in some cases, they just tell completely fabricated stories. It's sort of all over the place, and I'm still shocked by it. Uh, in some cases. <laughs> and I'm not sure why I'm still shocked by it because it's become rather normal um, or, or common, frequent. But uh, sometimes you know, people will just utterly make things up. And in this digital age when it's so easy to verify facts in so many cases, it's, it's a little bit stunning to me that people would be that brazen. But of course what they know is that most people won't actually try to verify the facts that they could verify if they would search them out. Um, but sometimes people just are utterly dishonest. They just fabricate stuff and tell lies. In, in other cases, we see people spread misinformation, right? They, they think it's true. Um, they haven't, again, sort of done the hard work of validating it, but, um, but they think it's true and they, and they spread it, but it's actually uh, misinformation and incorrect. But the, the result, as we are, we're, we're so aware of, that we live in this, we, we sort of breathe the air, so to speak, the cultural air. We swim in the water of um, just this uh, uh, kind of an online mob mentality. I mean, so there's, there's, there's rush to judgment and misinformation. That's sort of the air we breathe. And the result of that is is it just breeds one online mob after, after another that rushes to judgment, renders judgment, maligns a person's character, and then moves on to the next thing. That's, that's sort of the world we live in. It's not, it's not like everybody's doing it, but everybody's living in the middle of it. Um, now, uh, in that cultural climate, in that cultural climate of, of misinformation and rush to judgment, the, the church is at risk of assimilating that, kind of imbibing that, unconsciously, but, but imbibing that in such a way that it infects or corrodes the climate of trust and accountability that's necessary for the church to be healthy. I, I don't know if that just made sense, and let, so let me attempt to say it again. In, in a cultural climate of misinformation and rush, rush to judgment, the church is at risk of assimilating that you know, because we, because we live in it, because we breathe that air, it gets into our system, so to speak, and infects and corrodes the climate of trust and accountability that the church depends upon. It can't, they can't coexist. So, so misinformation and rusty judgment cannot coexist with, uh, with trust and accountability. And, th and this ought to concern us greatly this is a bit of an aside, but for the people of the people who bear the name Christ, when we call ourselves Christians, we who follow the one who is the way and the truth and the life, the one who says he came to testify 
to the truth. That was, that was the purpose for which he, he came into the world, to testify to the truth. We ought to be deeply concerned when we begin to loosen our grip and even just discard the truth, much less our love of it. But the church needs to be able to grant trust, enough trust to our leaders that we don't act upon the claims um, or accusation of one single person. Again, that, that necessitates that we start from the place of loving the truth. We can extend enough trust that we don't act upon the claims or accusation of one single person. Now, this principle is well established, as you know, if you're a student of the Bible, it's well established in the Old and the New Testaments, this idea of on the testimony of two or three witnesses. It's kind of common language if you've read the Bible. And it's also something we, we, we maybe sort of take for granted because we've inherited a measure of that in our own American legal system, and, and I suppose in the, just in the Western world. We expect, for example, that a system of justice will begin with the presumption of innocence and then will pursue the truth. It assumes somebody, if they've been accused, is innocent and then will pursue what the actual truth about that is. Now, I realize our legal system's imperfect in upholding that, um, but we kind of expect that to be the norm because we've always lived with that. There are many places in the world, they don't even aim for that. I don't know if you're aware of that. Like There are places that they don't even aim for you know, justice and truth because they're, they're driven by a love of power. So it's, a, it's about who can acquire power, who can sort of put their, feet, their foot down on anybody who would contest their power, and then ha, you know, who uh, sort of in the middle of that aligns themselves with the right power to kind of stay in favor or whatever. But it has nothing to do with a, a love of truth kind of objectively that would rule everybody. It's about being power-centered, um, and again, we actually ought to be more concerned about that than we are right now. This is a bit parenthetical, but, but this, this, this online mob that we participate in and that rushes to judgment and maligns people, people's character, it really is about being unconcerned about what's actually true because what we really want is for um, our guy to be in power or our uh, sort of our, our own... Um, sort of worldview or, or whatever, the, our, our tribe, <laughs> to be the tribe in power. And it's more about power than we realize. We're becoming more intoxicated by that um, than I think we're conscious of. And that's why I'm, I'm hammering uh, the issue now and at other times. Justice in the faces of, of accusations. Justice is endangered uh, when people abandon the truth. And that's actually even, even stating a little bit um, insufficiently, because justice is at risk when people don't hold fast to the truth. When people don't hold on to the truth like their very uh, life as a society depends on it, um, justice is endangered. And, and again, one of the reasons I get so riled up about Christians flinging falsehoods is because we are training ourselves. We're, we are we are actually disciplining our heart and mind to accept false accusations. I don't know if you're tracking with me on that, but when we just participate that, when we just, when we just kind of go along and, and, this, and we just accept this as a new norm, we're actually training our hearts and minds to accept false accusations and even then uh, pass them along. 
and to be part of the, of the sort of proverbial lynch mob, the sort of virtual lynch mob that picks up stones and stones one person after another rather than loving the truth and pursuing it. We're actually developing the discipline of believing lies because we'd rather believe a false accusation against somebody we have a beef with, somebody who's not in our tribe. We'd rather believe a false accusation about them uh, than we would to know the actual truth. Well, well enough about that, but trust, uh, there, there has to be trust, and that depends on truth. But the other side of that is trust has to be escorted by accountability. Trust, especially of leadership, has to be escorted by accountability. Look at verses 20 and 21. It says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Whether somebody's guilty or innocent, whether somebody is your guy or not your guy, do nothing from partiality. Do nothing with prejudging. Keep these rules impartially. And for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. That's, almost, like, that's like alarming, isn't it? I mean, is that an alarming level of accountability to us? It's, we can hardly imagine sort of the, the idea even of public rebuke in the church in many cases, but it's certainly to that level. Actually, Jesus lays out that standard for us in Matthew 18. Um, you know, you, you, if somebody's sinned against you, you approach them privately, and then you take somebody else with you, and if they don't repent and they're sort of persistent in it, you bring them before the church. Jesus laid out that standard. But, but this is kind of just strikingly direct. Rebuke them in the presence of all, but, but he gives the reason for that, and it's that others will see the consequence of their unrepentant sin. Here's what happens to leaders who persist in unrepentant sin. That we're reminded that there's a consequence, that, that we don't, that, that our sin and, and, and judgment for sin or whatever, uh, that that's a real thing, that that ultimately awaits mankind, and that it, that it manifests even right here on the earth and in the church. People need to be reminded of that fact. It, it, it makes me think of Proverbs 19.25, and uh, Proverbs 19.25, it says, Strike a scoffer, and the simple will learn prudence. Uh, I think maybe in, the, maybe in the New King James it says, uh, there's another translation, anyway, Strike a scoffer, and the simple will become wise. That is to say that the scoffer who just scoffs at righteousness and truth and so forth, who, who, who is persistent in sin and unrepentantly and defiantly, you strike the scoffer, and the person looking on who's more simple-minded, who might be, who might be tempted to sort of stray over into sin, will actually become wise because you've dealt decisively with that. Now, the, the, the lesson in, in that is that accountability, accountability is not only applied to the individual, but it's applied for the community that's looking on. That there is a message to the community that we actually believe what we say we believe. That we believe we're supposed to walk in righteousness and, and truth and in purity and so forth. That we expect that of our leaders above all. That we actually believe it 
and we're going to hold them accountable. That's not only accountable, uh, uh, the, the individual is held accountable, but that it's a message communicated uh, to the community. And that's, that's one of the reasons, for example, uh, that the, the Roman Catholic Church continues to, I don't know, flounder, reel so badly um, over the sexual abuse uh, crisis among priests is because there hasn't been sufficient accountability. I'm saying that um, not only, not even primarily as an outsider looking in, I'm saying that based on what people within the Catholic Church are saying, lay people in the Catholic Church and even some leaders who are saying, come clean here and hold people accountable for what you know they have done. The, the ways you know they've inflicted harm on other people. Hold them accountable. And where there's a lack of that, um, the, the community of faith knows full well there's a lack of that. And so the whole church continues to reel because they fail. They fail to escort trust with a, with a, a real, full measure of accountability. And that is essential. And so, as I said, it, it, is, uh, it is certain that a, that a church that has unhealthy leaderships will ultimately become an unhealthy church. And why does, why does that message matter to everybody and not only to leaders? In other words, why is this message not only one spoken directly to elders but to the whole church? Well, number one, because out of the church come our future leaders. There are some who, who need to be a part of that patient process of emerging as a future leader. But there are others, everybody else in the congregation, will be among those who affirm somebody as future leaders and among those who participate in holding accountable those future leaders. And we ought to all uh, do that together. We ought, we ought to all insist on that together because the health of the church depends on the spiritual health of the leadership. Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you as always for uh, your word and for the truth that it speaks to us. God, I thank you for the privilege of serving a congregation that does uh, love and trust um, its leadership well. I thank you, Lord, for serving among men as elders who are trustworthy and who hold each other accountable, who speak the truth in love to one another. And I, I'm grateful for them. God, would you keep us uh, centered on your will, on your truth? Would you, would you keep every one of our hearts held fast in your hands, pliable in your hands, that you would continue to shape us into the people who you want us to be as a local congregation, and Lord, as the people who glorify the name of Jesus, that we, uh, as well as any other community of faith, would be those who, as we read last week, who let our conduct among the, gent among the Gentiles be honorable. Would you just cause that to be said of us as a congregation? Um, because you enhance the health of our leadership, and therefore enhance the health of our congregation. We thank you. We ask it, God, in faith, trusting that you will, in the name of Jesus. Amen.